Hear now the word of the Lord. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word this morning. It is for all of us, no matter what is in our pocket, no matter what is in our banking app. These words are for all of us this morning. We pray that your Holy Spirit would change us in our relationship with money. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. You and I are in a long-term relationship with money, and it's complicated. When your hope is in money, the absence of it will make you obsessed with getting more of it. And the abundance of it will make you obsessed with keeping it. Unless you see through the deceit. As we look at these few verses this morning, I want you to notice something from the outset. These verses are not about money. These verses are about how money affects the way we see ourselves and others. These verses are about our relationship with money. You see, the disease that James endeavors to cure in us this morning is our desire for self-fulfillment. And there's only one cure for it. The only cure for this disease is an eternal perspective. James is not making light of poverty. In fact, later in his letter, he'll give a clear command for those who have plenty to meet the needs of those who have little. Nor is he condemning riches. Rather, James is aiming at the heart. Right at our hearts. He's calling all in the church, rich, poor, middle class, everyone in between, to an eternal perspective. And as we look at our relationship with money this morning in light of eternity, we will learn two things. All those who are poor aren't poor. And all those who are rich aren't rich. All those who are poor aren't poor. The Bible divides all of human history into two basic periods. This age and the age to come. Are you familiar with that terminology from Scripture? This age and the age to come. And for certain, with the coming of Jesus Christ, this age to come, even now, it's begun to break in, hasn't it? But the great fulfillment of this age to come, it's still in the future. We experience it some now, but its great fulfillment is still in the future. This age, this age, the one we live in now, is the age where sin and strife and war and natural disasters and famines and pandemics still persist as stark reminders that the wages of sin is death. And along with all those other wages, poverty. And I'm not talking about what might be your individual poverty this morning. It is true, there are many sin patterns that can lead to poverty. Many. But I'm not talking about your individual poverty. I mean poverty. Capital P, 
See, God's original design did not include poverty. But now in this age, many experience it. Many of those to whom James is writing here, they were in poverty, or as he calls it, these brothers in lowly circumstance. They were in a situation, they were in this situation through persecution. Many of them were once rich, or at least at some level of regular provision. But because of the name of Jesus Christ, because of their love for him, their identification with the community of faith, they have been run out of house and home and vocation and support community, the previous ones. And James addresses those in a lowly position. And this is what he says to them in verse 9. Look at it. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. What? The lowly brother or sister in the church might be looking around and saying to themselves, "Um, James, there is no exaltation in my life. Zero. Zilch. The world treats me poorly, and to be honest, even most of the people in this fellowship, in this church, treat me like I am less than them. Friends, if we don't read this verse in light of the age to come, it will make no sense to us. No sense whatsoever. In what way is the poor exalted in this age? Simply put, they aren't. But in the age to come, those who belong to Jesus Christ will be exalted and lifted up to a high position in the kingdom of God. Now notice something interesting here. James does not say, let the lowly brother look forward to the day when he will one day be able to boast in his exaltation. No, both the boasting and the exaltation are presented here as present realities. You might remember Paul's words from Ephesians 2. See if these sound familiar. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in heavenly places in Christ so that, here it is, in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Rich or poor in this life, those who have been saved by Jesus Christ have been in some sense, seated with Christ in the heavenly place. And I know that's mysterious. I don't really ever understand it when Paul says it. But I begin to. And I hope you can. Just begin to. But it leads us to a couple of conclusions. First, all the poor are not poor. The poor in Christ are rich beyond measure. And so James begins this admonition with these words, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Now without lessening what people in need go through, understand this, this is true. Those in lowly circumstances in this age in Christ are rich in the age to come. And even now they begin to experience it. So you can see why James can say this with a straight face. 
How he can look at starving, disheveled, homeless, unbathed, dirty Christians in this community that he's writing to and say, Go and joyfully boast in all God has done for you. And what an honored place you have at his feasting table. Boast in it. If you only believe in this age, those words are empty and offensive and abusive. And again, James is going to deal with how to rightly love those in need later in the letter. But today, I just want you to hear this. Not all who are poor are poor. Though they be lowly in this age, even now in part and one day in full, they will be exalted in Jesus Christ. And the second thing verse 9 tells us is this. There is no place for partiality in the church of God. I won't linger here because we're going to look at this in chapter 2, but let me just point this out. To show partiality to those who are rich or powerful in the church or to denigrate or ignore or mistreat the poor and powerless in the church is to deny the realities of the age to come. The poor brother in Christ, the rich sister in Christ will both be exalted in Christ. So all the poor aren't poor. And to the one in lowly circumstance this morning in Christ, you are exalted. There is no place for partiality in the church of Jesus Christ. Because all believers are one in Him. All those who are poor in this age are certainly not poor in the age to come. Some are rich beyond measure. And secondly, all those who are rich aren't rich. And for most of us in this room, this is the more poignant point. You may say, well, I'm not rich. Listen, on a a continuum of the world, you are filthy, stinking rich. Praise God for the blessings that he's put in your life. But you're rich. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich... In his humiliation. Now, arguably, this is the harder of the two phrases to understand. I hope I have in some measure explained how James can tell the lowly brother to boast in his exaltation. But this one, what in the world does James mean by this? First of all, we need to consider, at least consider, maybe not decide, but consider. Is James speaking to rich believers or rich unbelievers? Now stay with me here. This is important. If James is talking to wealthy believers in the church, this message might be something like this. Knowing all Christ has done for you. Realize and proclaim and boast that you you look rich on the outside in this age, but boast in the fact that God humbled you. In the midst of that richness that He humbled you to see your need for Him. Realize that the wealth you have in this world, it played no role in your salvation whatsoever. And it will benefit you none in the age to come. The Bible certainly makes those points elsewhere. So if this is James' message here in these verses, it certainly squares with what the rest of the scriptures teach about wealth, the humbling power of the gospel, and the future hope for all believers. It does. If that's his message, it is right on in square with everything else Scripture teaches 
about these things. And I feel confident in God this morning that if you are here as a believer and you are currently in an this age state of prosperity, I believe that is exactly what the Holy Spirit will do through His Word in you this morning. I pray these verses remind you of what you already know, that your present and future hope are in Christ, not your this age wealth. But if he's talking to unbelievers, well, the message is a bit different. It might sound more like what follows in the rest of these verses. Look again at verses 10 and 11. Let the rich boast in his humiliation... Because like a flower, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Even these verses could be a warning to a professing Christian. A warning in the vein of Peter's call to make your calling and election sure. So I'm going to attempt to preach... These next few verses faithfully when it, with an admission that I'm not totally certain whom James, James is addressing here. And in the end, I don't know that it matters. Because these verses make a plain point to us, to all of us, and the point is this, wealth will not save you. Whatever cliche you want to use, can't take it with, with you when you go. Money can't buy happiness. Whatever it is, listen, we all know it. We all know it. I mean, you hear stories of the rare exception of some old rich codger wanting to be buried with his money. But we all know taking riches into the next life is a fool's errand. But you know what? Even though we know it, we can't stop ourselves. We cannot stop ourselves from putting our hope in it. Do you agree? Is anybody with me on that? Do you ever stop and really think about where your hope is founded? I think even for the believer, the temptation is there to hoard and hope in our money. We know it won't save, and yet we can't stop ourselves from falling into the temptation of putting our hope in it. My favorite TV show with no close second is a show that ran on the USA Network in the early 2000s called Monk. If you haven't seen it, Adrian Monk is an obsessive, compulsive detective. And Monk's OCD, it comes with an unrivaled attention to detail. And it makes him a great detective, the best detective. But it also comes with a debilitating compulsion that haunts his life. And it robs him of a joy and a basic social functionality. The writers of that show, by the way, do an awesome job of melding those two things together. This debilitating compulsion, it haunts him. And Monk and his assistant 
Natalie Teeger, in this one scene, they're chasing a suspect through an Air Force base. And as he's running through one of the ammunition rooms on a mission, there are six missiles on a rack, and one of them doesn't have the warhead screwed on. So as he runs through and he turns around and he goes back and he picks up the warhead and he starts to screw it back in to the fuselage. And Natalie yells, what are you doing? And Monk says, I don't know. And then he starts to polish the warhead with the sleeve of his jacket, presumably to get the smudge off of it. And Natalie yells, no, 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 those are missiles. They could be nuclear. And Monk, continuing to polish, says, then stop me. (laughs) But he just keeps polishing. You see, he cannot help himself. He knows he's handling a deadly weapon that could kill him. But his impulse to have control and order is more powerful than the knowledge of the danger he's in. Friends, this is our relationship with money. Probably not all of us, but most of us. We know we can't take it with us. We know it can't even save us in this life. And we know it will not help us in the age to come. But we just keep polishing. Well, at the end of that scene, Natalie grabs Monk's arm and pulls him physically away from the missile. From the warhead, and they continue to pursue the suspect, they get back on mission at that point. And in the parable of the sower, Jesus speaks of four soils that the seed of the word is cast upon. And one of those soils is described as soil that was full of thorns. And the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And later when the disciples asked him about the parable, Jesus said this about the seed that fell into that thorny soil. It's in Mark 4. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. This is James's warning to the rich. The deceitfulness of riches is a terrible thing. The temptation to keep pursuing what we know will not satisfy is a compulsion. And when we believers begin to fall into it, we need a Natalie Teeger who loves us to come over and yank our arm off the warhead and remind us there is an age to come. You know, the Bible has a robust message. If you take it as a whole, a robust message about vocation and business, and investment, and saving, and charity, and generosity. And if this text this morning is opening up questions about those other aspects of money to you, I'm glad. Please reach out to Jimmy or me, or any, anyone in the church, just a brother or sister, or say, hey, I'm wondering about this aspect of money. I'm glad, but I want to say again, these verses are not primarily about the riches themselves. They're about the hearts of men and women. 
the poor, the rich, the believer, the unbeliever, the message is this. Poverty in this age is a trial. And we'll see in verse 12 that perseverance in that trial leads to a crown of life, an unmitigated plenty in the age to come. But get this, prosperity in this age is a trial. And a far more dangerous one. Because often, prosperity is the trial you don't know you're in. Listen to these sobering verses again. Because like a flower of the grass, he, that is the rich person, will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. The image here is of a flower that seems strong and impressive in the morning. But by the afternoon when the sun reaches its full height, the scorching heat has disintegrated its flower. One minute, a thing of impressive beauty. The next minute, gone from memory. So in the case of the believing rich, take pride in your humiliation. In your invitation to glory and boast in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Once I based all my hope on something that could have never saved me. Praise God, He humbled me to see my true state before Him. I will boast that in my own strength and merit, I was humiliated, but in Christ I'm exalted. But in the case of the unbelieving rich, James's command to take pride in your humiliation, it has to be seen as abiding irony. Let me paraphrase if I can. To the one trusting in riches, go and boast like this. Look at me. (laughs) I'm such a fool. (laughs) I've got all this wealth, all the power that comes with it, all this prestige. I've got the best office with the best view. I drive the best car to it, and it's all pointless. (laughs) I could go to sleep tonight and never wake up, and it'll all be gone. Look at my splendor. (laughs) I'll be bankrupt tomorrow. Wouldn't that be a foolish embarrassment? Like an emperor with no clothes. It would be like compulsively wiping the smudges off of a nuclear warhead. But friends, millions upon millions of people are doing just that. Polishing a portfolio that will be meaningless in the age to come. All the rich aren't rich. As I've meditated on these verses this week, I must confess, I think it's fairly easy to hear these words from James and maybe even understand them. It's another thing altogether to learn to live with this mindset. For the one in great need, the pain and struggle of scarcity is so in your face that without the work of the Holy Spirit, you will struggle to enjoy any semblance of your future and partially present exaltation in Jesus Christ. You will. And for the rich, the ability to write a check and make so many of your problems go away will be so deceitful. Without the work of the Holy Spirit in your life, 
or sadly, the onset of a problem that money cannot solve, and there are many, it will be so hard for you to remember that in the age to come, these earthly riches will be of no use to you whatsoever. It's so difficult to see through the relentless deceitfulness of money. And as I close, I want to share an experience with you that I hope will help in some way. I pray the Holy Spirit, now, even now, Holy Spirit, use this. Give us a clear vision of this two-age reality. A few months ago, our oldest daughter got married. I've probably brought this up a time or two. I'm pretty proud of it. Uh, The ceremony was beautiful. It was a time of great joy when we saw our daughter leave father and mother and begin a new life with her husband. It was beautiful. It was a picture of Christ and his bride, the church. And I thank God, I do, I thank God for that moment of the legal union before the state of Tennessee and before God and those witnesses of Maddie and John. But I have to admit, the ceremony itself is not what left the most lasting impression on me. It was the reception. The only way I know to describe it is that it was a celebration of unfettered joy. Maddie and John had hired a smoking hot live band. I'm just going to tell you, they were awesome. The reception hall it was decorated beautifully. And once all the guests had been welcomed in, the MC got onto the mic and he began announcing the wedding party in pairs, one after the other. And these young men and women, bridesmaids and their corresponding groomsmen, they came in two by two, each with their own unique choreographed dance. There was laughter, there were cheers and and clapping, and the band in the background, and finally the bride and groom entered to the applause and joy of all the guests. And over the next two hours, that hall was filled with music and an abundance of food and drink. Laughter and storytelling and music and dancing were everywhere. We were sharing a glorious time of celebration with our family and many of our friends. Rich, poor, and everyone in between enjoyed the night with the same level of exuberance. And you know what? None of them paid for any of it. I'm certain of it. Paying the price for that joyous welcome was the distinct honor of the parents of the bride and the groom. And in that room, in the midst of that joyous celebration and seemingly endless abundance of provision, there was no distinction between rich and poor in that room. Because in that room, listen, prosperity and poverty were utterly meaningless. There were no booths to purchase extra perks, no fast passes, no private doors with paid entry. We had paid for everything. And for that short two-hour time span, it was as if the age to come had broken in. Friends, I wish I could present to you what it was actually like. How I experienced it. Because as I stood back against the back wall to witness 
the spectacle of laughter and joy and musing, music and dancing and food and drink and celebration, I felt in my spirit, as the one who had paid for it, a deep, deep gladness. That all we had done to prepare for that day was finally bearing its fruit. Do you know that is what Jesus is longing for right now? Jesus Christ is longing for his wedding feast. And when it comes, if you by faith in him find yourself a guest at that great feast, you will forget if you ever had two nickels to rub together. There will not be fine clothing and shabby dress in that hall because all the guests will be wearing the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And the greatest joy that the universe has ever known will be on the face of Jesus as he shares the feast with his bride. And because we are in him, that same joy will fill our hearts. Praise God. And let's pray. Father, thank you. Oh God, this, this deceitfulness of riches is killing us. And we need to be freed from it. I pray that for those in need, you would meet every need through the generosity of others, but that they would see, though now they be in a lowly position in Christ, they are exalted in heavenly places. And Father, for those of us who still polish the warhead, grab our arms, take us back on mission. And Lord, when that day comes, let us rejoice in unfettered joy and celebration that we have been invited guests to the Feast of the Lamb. We pray in his name. Amen.